Bridge. A very, very hearty welcome to each one of our listeners. You are hearing the voice of Professor David Block, and the program today is entitled Looking Up with David Block. And I believe that as you and I uh, move along the rivers of the journeys of this life, Each one of us has dreams, aspirations, and I sincerely believe that it is so important to finely tune our attitudes, and much more about that later on. But a hearty welcome to each one of our precious jewels, our listeners. Remember, you can join me in studio. There are different ways of doing this. Why not give me a toll-free ring? Duncan, this is toll-free, isn't it? They don't pay, right? They they, they do pay. pay oh, they do yeah. pay. Okay, so there's a downside there. The upside is you reach the professor. But the downside is you pay. But it's a local call, I suppose. Yeah. And it's zero. Is that right, Duncan? It's a local call. It's a local call, but uh, the WeChat messages are free. So, so the WeChat's free. Okay. So you're listening to Professor David Block, uh, who can be reached online at 0861-555-189. That's 0861-555-189. On Twitter, you reach me at the, the little Twitter handle at cliffcentral.com. Uh, WeChat is the most popular way of people reaching me, and uh, that the WeChat ID is simply Cliff Central. And I'm just so excited because I believe you are so excited. And why am I so excited? Because, Duncan, I heard um, through uh, Rena Broomberg is that uh, our little uh, broadcast last week was the podcast of the week. Really? So that's what Rena tells me. She certainly made my day as I walked in and she said, Prof, did you know that your little uh, interview on Youth Day was actually voted as podcast of the week? So that really made me feel extra special. That, that was brilliant, Professor. And I must say that was one of your gems. That was one of your most classic shows. You, you will always be remembered for that oh, show. Oh, good. Oh, good. Well, that's just, just so wonderful. So do reach me, please. And whether you're listening from here or from Cape Town or from Dubai where we've had callers or from Chicago where we've had callers, wherever you are on this globe, please feel free to reach me. I remember so well the year 1969. Now, Duncan, I don't suppose you remember that year especially well because I doubt whether you were born yet. No, I wasn't. I'm a 90s kid. Ah, good. So there you go. Duncan's is a 90s kid. Uh, Well, I uh, was born, of course, in uh, Krugersdorp. And as a youngster, I remember so vividly gazing up at the moon. You might say to me, what is a young teenager doing gazing up at the moon instead of uh, heavenly bodies on a beach? (laughs) Well, the point really is, is that I fell passionately in love 
not with a heavenly body on the beach, but with the night skies above. And um, this all took, takes me to the landing on the moon. So the moon landing. And to, today's feature show is really to take you down the road of what the status of computer technology was in 1969. I think it's a fascinating question. What was the status? Uh, what computers were being used uh, at the time of the moon landing? Because that is clearly, you know, one of the greatest technological achievements, I would think, of uh, that era and one of the most historic moments um of uh, the existence of mankind is the actual landing on the moon. And, of course, the question really is, you know, technology, of course, has grown in leaps and bounds. But, uh, Duncan, can you believe that I lived in an age where there was not one cell phone? We had a radio. That was my means of communication. Uh when I grew up in Krugersdorp, Duncan, from where you come to, no TV. Duncan, of course, you're much younger than I am. Did you have a TV at the stage of growing up, or were you also just uh, sort of saddled with this radio? Uh, I think uh, TV has been a, a very big big part of my life. It's, yes. I, I can always remember TV. Okay, well, that would be right. If you're a 90s kid, then certainly you'd remember TV. But uh, to us, TV was totally foreign. And so man landed on the moon in 1969. Now, people often say to me, Professor, don't be sexist. Uh, what about women? Well, unfortunately, um, I have to say, well, how do I put this, Duncan? I'm not sure. But Neil Armstrong is a man. Um, there's no question. And so... Um, Neil Armstrong was the first person, first man, first person to land on the moon. The year was 1969. Where was I? I was in Krugersdorp, and I remember going outside of an evening and looking at this enigmatic moon, just this moon blazing across the sky and just in all its brilliance and splendor and majesty. And wow, there I listened on the radio, you know, on to the NASA feed, man was about to set foot on the moon. And I just became so animated, I couldn't get enough of the news into my neurophysiological processes. I just couldn't digest the majesty and the awesomeness of the moment and of the story which is unfolding before my very eyes. But as I say, we had no television uh, television wasn't out then, way back in 1969. Uh, all I had was access to a little radio, and I remember putting this radio to my ear because the sound um, of the astronauts' voices as they were about to land uh, was not very strong on air. And so we must remember this was a feed from the moon through to um, JPL and NASA, and then a feed from NASA across the world, and then, you know, including the SABC and uh, the receivers at that time, technology rather primitive. We're going to be focusing on that today. But I'd love to hear your questions, too, as to, you know, how did it feel to me 
uh, the day that man landed on the moon and what, you know, I've just got such incredible stories, which I'll be sharing with you a little later, including Nelson Mandela holding a piece of the moon. So there's just so much to share. But my main focus on that evening was it was evening and then it was morning, 4.56 a.m., four minutes to five in the morning. Uh, and then I heard these words. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. I don't know if Duncan has got this. Have you got this? I've the... got a surprise. I've got it oh, for you, Professor. Oh, let's listen. One giant leap for mankind. That's one small step for man. Columbia, Columbia, this is Houston. AOS, over. Houston, Columbia, again, over. Wow, I must play that again, please, Duncan. Play it again. That's one small step. I just, just, oh, let's go for it. Step off the ladder. There we go. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Oh, Duncan is absolutely amazing. Oh, yes. I remember that like yesterday. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And that was on July 21, 1969, uh, four minutes to five, 4.56 a.m. South African time, when man reached his dream of stepping upon the moon. So those were the words which I heard. But the tech, But of course... The question really is, as I've said, the technology those days was such that I was listening by means of radio. I well remember wanting to see the event before my eyes. I would have loved to have seen man landing on the moon, but of course we didn't have any TV. So what we did was, is we went to the Johannesburg Planetarium and uh, we lined up there. I remember the queue stretching from Yale Road down to Empire Road, there was a massive queue, thousands of people showing up, and live there on a big screen, they could play, replay some of the footage of the first moon landing in 1969. And, uh, wow, I see that this is actually going to be uh, coming up in a second in my, on my screen. But it was an incredible moment standing there in Yale Road wondering, will I ever get into the planetarium? Will I ever succeed in, you know, making my way through the doors, given that it looked like Ellis Park in a sense? And uh, eventually we got in, my father and myself, and uh, oh, wow. You know, that leads me to a very important point. I was speaking to a lady yesterday, a Dr. Heidi, and Dr. Heidi called me, and it was an absolute miracle because I never, ever pick up direct calls. Um, you know, it might happen once or twice every, you know, 10 years or so. Um, everything's, you know, controlled and monitored as it should be. But the point really is, at the point is, yesterday the phone rang, and I just looked at my telephone, and I, it was as if uh, God gave me a little nudge, Duncan, and he said, uh, you must answer that phone. And so I answered it, and uh, Dr. Heidi, uh, you know, was very, very, very taken aback that I should answer the phone and not our secretaries. And uh, But I just felt I want to answer that call. I mean, this might happen just five times in ten years or something. That I'll say, I want to 
you know, I can't remember when this last happened. But anyway, Dr. Heidi called me and she said she heard me um, lecture many years ago now at the Walter Sisulu Botanical Gardens. And her daughter, Aliki, has fallen in love with uh, astronomy and becoming an astronomer. And Duncan, that's the power of encouragement, is my father took me to the planetarium to watch the first landing on the moon. Duncan, what are your thoughts when it comes to the power of encouragement of parents? I mean, we've spoke, but it has just been Father's Day. I, I just, I can't thank my daddy enough for taking the time to stand with me in a long queue. What does it say to you, Duncan? I, I think most of us, professors, sometimes don't know where to turn to. Yes, and, uh, I think that's true, you know. The, the, the pool of encouragement that I've always had was from yes. my family. Oh, wonderful. So if the whole world, the rest of the world didn't encourage me, I could yes. always rely and depend on my parents yes. to encourage me. Yes. So I think uh, parents encouraging uh, their children is really important. Yes, it, it's, it, it it's, really is. It's what molds the kids in yes. the long run. Yes. Absolutely so And you know I can never forget My daddy standing with me And as I say It almost looked like A mini Ellis Park You know And those words Were just blazing In my ears One small step for man One giant leap for mankind But alongside me Was my daddy Remember I was In 1969 I was a teenager Of 15 Having been born In 1954 So if my maths Is right And correct me If I'm wrong but without a calculator, that should make me 15 years of age. So it was an incredible time of molding. And my father, Leon Block, wanted his son, David Block, to actually experience the landing on the moon. And we got into the planetarium. We managed to break through all the crowds and so forth. And we saw the moon landing. And I then entered Wits University a couple of years later. But. What were the state of computers then? Professor, well, can I just stop you there? Yes. I heard pleasure. a really interesting fact uh, this week that yes. uh, upon the landing of the moon, yes. not the landing of the moon, upon the humans landing on the moon, uh-huh. control only was using six megabytes on their spaceship. Uh, oh, I'll be gi- absolutely. I'll be giving you, in fact, I'll be giving you the, uh, the uh, characteristics of the computers in a moment. Uh, but it's astonishing. Mm. It's actually, this program is entitled Toasters and the First Moon Landing. Now, let me just tell you why I've called it Toasters and the First Moon Landing. You know that if you've got an electronic uh, toaster, Duncan, you can choose to defrost the toast, you know, from the freezer. You put it in the toaster, you defrost it, and you can control it, you know, light brown or dark brown and so on, and pop up and all that. In other words, it's it's there's a little computer designed to, you know, figure all this stuff out. And when you defrost for two minutes or three minutes or so, so there's a little in some chips and so forth, computer chips and so forth in there. Now, those chips are far, 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 far more sophisticated than the computers used to put man on the moon. And so that's why I've called it toasters and uh, the moon landing because (laughs) that which we use today, not even in our microwave, but in toasting bread, just, you know, a stop-start button and a, you know, defrost button, as more sophisticated. Let us just, before I tell you part of my story with computers, let's just give you a few little facts. Duncan, what figure did you give for the, uh, for the um, memory span? The, the, how many kilobytes, uh, megabytes did you think it was? Uh, six megabytes. Okay. So he's gone to six megabytes. 
Um, I remember, and this is going back a long way now, Duncan, but I remember that the computers then were so large that they occupied a whole floor. In other words, it was not just uh, in Handheld. It was the whole section of Cliff Central here, the whole floor, was one computer. And uh, the computers at that stage used by um, NASA uh, had a memory capability of, and I'll let Duncan read it. 64KBs. <laughs> Kilobytes. <laughs> Can you imagine this, folks? 64 kilobytes. That <laughs> is what we use to put man on the moon. I mean, it sounds like a little, uh, you know, it sounds like something out of Star Trek, doesn't it? I mean, it's just, you see, there's a story here, Duncan. And the story is, the technology maketh not the man. The man or the woman maketh the history. Let me repeat that again. The technology maketh not the man or the woman. The man or the woman maketh the history. And so my point here is this, that Duncan, what do you, I mean, seriously, now that I'm telling you, you know, now that we've got cell phones and we've got, you know, just all the little rams we want in our pockets and USB sticks and so on, what do you, I mean, could, is it conceivable that we could have put man on the moon with a 64K? I mean, it, it's staggering. Well, the lesson I learned from this, Professor, is that uh, as uh, as the humans, we will do whatever it takes. Yes, I think that's right. Um, we've played twice on the youth program, Mar uh, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, I Have a Dream. And uh, certainly mankind had a dream to put man on the moon. But it is staggering. It is absolutely staggering. And I think there's a key point here. To know how, you know, primitive the, the technology was. And the key point that I want to drive here is students, and I know we've got vast numbers of students hearing my voice across the global feed. Uh, students today always believe that, you know, you need the best. You need the best computers. You need the best technology. You need the best cell phones. You need the best up-to-date dot, 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 dot. And I find that you need the best head. In other words, you need to think, you know, I'm sure that if I told you I'm going to give you a, a USB stick of 64 Ks, <laughs> seriously, I mean, you wouldn't even give it uh, to your worst enemy. I mean, seriously, 64 kilobytes, give me a break. And its processing speed is even more staggering, 0 0.043 megahertz. I mean, it is, to give you an idea, I asked... Uh, my twin boys, what, you know, what specs they've got on their machines and so on. Well, first of all, let me tell you what my specs are on one of the machines that I use. Um, I use an i7 um, at uh, 2.2 um, gigabyte, uh, sorry, 16 gigabytes of RAM. Wow. And it's 2.2 uh, gigahertz. So that's 2 billion uh 2,000 million hertz. We're looking at machines here uh, which are just, I mean, billions of, thousands of times, you know, 50,000 times. I mean, just, you know, orders of magnitude in some cases, depending on which specs we're looking at. But my processor, the i7, 16 gigabytes of RAM compared to 64 kilobytes 
1969. And the operating speed of my system, one I use, is 2.2 gigahertz. This one is operating at 0.043 megahertz. Uh, it is unbelievable. Remember that 2 gigahertz is 2,000 million hertz. That's 2 billion hertz. I mean, it's, it's just staggering that with such an ancient, primitive set of devices, man, mankind could actually go and land on the moon. Ah, inappropriate's on the line. Ah, that's great. Inappropriate, you always help me look up. So welcome to you. You are just one of our most faithful followers. And I see we've also got another very faithful follower, Darren from PE. And I just love both of your comments so much. They really keep me looking up. Inappropriate says or asks, let me just read his question. Prof, what do you think about the notion that the moon landing was faked? I suppose it's asking me... Uh, inappropriate, you know, whether my marriage was faked. Uh, you know, somehow I know that I'm married. Now, if I was schizophrenic, you could argue that I am married in a dream world and that it's all set up and it's all faked, but that uh, my wife Liz, my beloved wife Liz, doesn't really exist. We must remember many factors. First of all, Billions of people watched the moon landing. You know, hundreds of thousands on site watched the rocket go up. Okay, point number one. Point number two is they brought back material which we'd never found on Earth. They brought back rocks which had never ever been exposed to wind or to water or to sound. And uh, they brought back this material. So, you know, where on Earth would you be able to get the stuff from if it was just an illusion. You've always got this press mania out there inappropriate that, you know, when it comes to great things, that there's something faked. Um, I would rather say that we should look at ESCOM more carefully <laughs> if you want to look at these sorts of myths and so on, because I'm not sure what's happening there. But all I know is when my load shedding happens, I can't work unless everything's been fired up beforehand. So I'm not sure, you know, if the story's coming out of there, what's happening there, Duncan. But all I know is I can't land on my moon when my, you know, when I'm sitting in the dark and the, you know, the salaries of certain CEOs goes up. So I'm just trying to get the logic here, right, Duncan? I don't know if it's ever crossed your mind. I think ESCOM was the one that was faked, Professor. What did I say? That ESCOM was oh, yes, faked. Yes. Well, I think that's... Uh, you know, let me not go down that road too much. But the point is that, uh, you know, are, are the power generators lacking in maintenance? Aren't they lacking in maintenance? On Carte Blanche, we saw a huge lake of human feces, the Val River, in fact, human feces everywhere. And the guy interviewed said, all is well and very healthy. And the guy was wanting to vomit the interview because he was <laughs> wanting to throw up because there was poo everywhere. And he said all was well. So I think all was well in a faked sense. So when it comes to that, 
um, you know, I'd say poo in the Vaal River, that's not faked. I mean, there's either poo there or there isn't. And that's the sort of thing where the moon landing is either it happened or didn't. And, you know, I mean, I, as an astronomer, for example, can attest to the fact that I've actually examined, I've held a moon rock in my hand, and these rocks are not found anywhere on the earth. They've never suffered from water, from wind, from air and so on. But I want to show you, before I go to your um, Darren's question, I want to show you, and Duncan will call this up, if one goes to www.davidblock.co.za, and Duncan's going to bring it up in a second, so it's just davidblock, one word, .co.za, I want to show you a very special picture today. So you can do this on your machine too, www.davidblock.co.za, and there's a little button that says, uh, with the stars. So Duncan's going to bring it up, and there you'll see here and here, uh, are two incredible pictures of Nelson Mandela holding something in a pyramid. Do you see that, Duncan? Maybe make that a big, bit bigger. You can click on there. There we go. Look at that. Oh, that is just awesome. Now, if you've done what I've said, if you've gone to www.davidblock.co.za and you click on the button with the stars, you'll see a picture of Nelson Mandela really looking very satisfied. Agree, Duncan? Yep. What what looks on the face? It shows you warmth, doesn't it, Duncan? It shows you happiness. It shows you, wow. Fulfillment. Fulfillment. I love that word. There you are. Duncan's given me the, he's given the prof the word, fulfillment. Why is Nelson Mandela so fulfilled holding this monarch? Why? Well, there's a lovely story. You see, Nelson Mandela was on Robben Island when man landed on the moon in 1969. Wow. He was on Robben Island. I mean, just imagine this. I, I just can't. He has a cold floor, huh? You know what I mean? Short pants. The guy wore short pants, apparently. I mean, it's just staggering. Man's landing on the moon, and Nelson Mandela is in it. But little did Nelson Mandela know that one day he would hold a piece of rocks collected by the Apollo astronauts in his hands. He mm. never knew this. And he actually said to me, he actually said to me, Prof, this is an unforgettable experience. He's actually written that down for me. Holding the moon rock is an unforgettable experience. And so, uh, you know, uh, inappropriate. Why did I bring that up? Because we've held these moon rocks. We've examined these moon rocks. They are just so different to the rocks we find on Earth. So, if, you know, there's so many, uh, you know, l lunacy fringe type people out there uh, who claim that the moon landing was faked. But I say in response that if you regard that as a fake, you may as well believe that your wife or husband is a fake as well. <laughs> Or that I didn't meet Mandela, that it's just a Photoshop. Except I can tell you this was before the era of uh, the extreme uh, Photoshop. But, I mean, how do I know that I met Stephen Hawking on that page, if you go to that page? Uh, DavidBlock.coza, and then you hit on the With the Stars button. How do I know that I met Stephen Hawking? How do I know that I met Nelson Mandela? All I can say is by personal testimony, by personal experience. I mean, Duncan, how do you know you weren't born in Sweden? Because you know, you have experience, right? That yeah. you were born in Cajeso. Yeah, definitely. So the point really is here is we know. 
And Neil Armstrong knows that he went to the moon. We witnessed the launch. We witnessed it. We saw the rocket go up. It doesn't just go up and come down again. We saw it go up. Uh, we collected material from there. Uh, unknown on terra firma. Uh, there's just so many pointers I could give you to the fact, you know, just like how do I know that I'm married and have kids? Well, I've just seen them. But you could argue that that was a myth in my mind. Uh, but then I believe I need to be certified as a lunatic, which is interesting because lunatic comes from the word luna, which means touched by the moon. So <laughs> Here's an interesting comment that just came in from Mike, Professor. It says, uh, why was the flag waving in the picture of the moon. Oh, Mike, that's... Oh, thank you, Duncan. Mike, that is just a lovely, lovely uh, question. I just think that's awesome because we know, of course we know, that there's no wind on the moon, there's no water on the moon, no sound travels on the moon. The moon is a very devoid place of all uh, atmospheric gases. Uh, It is impassable. Impossible for any wind to blow on the moon. And so, yes, when we took photographs of the U.S. flag on the moon, uh, it seemed to be a waving. And uh, this has been often asked is, how can you have, it's a brilliant question, how can you have a flag waving on the moon if there's no atmosphere there, if there's no wind there? That's what uh, Mike is asking the professor, and that's a brilliant, brilliant question. Well, when NASA designed a flag to place on the moon, they decided that it would be make no sense to have a flag which is flat. Because in, on Earth, we always see flags yes, waving yes, in the yes. wind. You get the idea? Mm. So all they did was, Mike is they put in some wire, okay, into the flag. And so they made it go up and down. And so what the wire did was it looked as if the, in other words, the flag was bent. Do you get the idea, Duncan? Like the wind was blowing. That's right. It looked as if the wind was blowing. But it because we had inserted wires along the length of the flag, we inserted wires which were bent so that the flag followed the bending movement of the wires. So, it, in other words, it wasn't a flat flag. It looked as if it would be waving in the wind, just like flags do on Earth. So that was the decision made at NASA to have a realistic flag up there. We know that there's no atmosphere. So, you know, at NASA it was agreed upon at that time to just manufacture a flag which look, which had wire in it, which was bent, so that the flag looked very realistic. And there we go. Um, you know, yes, uh, Duncan's pulled up a lovely site, 10 reasons why the moon landings could be a hoax. And I just wish people would ask the professor questions rather than say it was a hoax. And one of the myths is, though, you know, the conspiracy theorists, you know, is that the the, um, the the flag was waving. Well, it does look as if it's waving, but the point is, there's wire in there. <laughs> My colleagues went and put wire in the flag, so they've actually deformed the shape of the flag to give it the appearance of an Earth-like flag. Just a quick question, Professor. So if there was no wires, yes, the flag would just be hanging down. If there was no wires, the flag would absolutely just be, you know what I mean, Just it would just be a 
piece of cloth exactly hanging and, right down. And you wouldn't see it. You wouldn't see the flag. I mean, here you want to put up the, you know, which nation has landed on the moon? The United States of America. They want to, they want, I mean, Duncan's exactly got the point. You want to suit countries. If you just go and put a flag up on the moon, it'll just droop down. No, just a tiny piece of cloth drooping down, and you will not see it at all. So they want it to be straight. They want it to be almost horizontal. They want it, they want you to see it, as Duncan has said. And the way we achieved this was to put wires in the flag and to give it the appearance of motion. Otherwise, we wouldn't see the flag at all. And so it's a very brilliant question, Mike, but it's, you know, everybody uh, knew the answer to that who had worked at NASA, is that uh, it was all uh, very carefully designed. Um, and, uh, you know, as Duncan goes through all these uh, little hoaxes and so on, it's just such, you know, unexplained, no, it's, sorry, it's just such uh, myths, you know, uh, hidden cables and the... I mean, this is just unbelievable. You know, apparently there's a lack of stars on the moon. Well, that's not surprising, I suppose, if the sun's shining, Duncan. But, um, you know, the sea rock, um, yeah, 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 yeah. And so on in the backdrops. And, you know, each of these have got such sound scientific explanations. Um, you know, um, I wouldn't worry about that, Mike. I hope it answers your question. It's a very brilliant question, though, as to um, why the the why we had to insert wire. But Duncan, you get the point that the uh, it would have it would have absolutely uh, been hanging limp. Otherwise, we're just going to have a short break. Get a taste of the Republic of Extra Cold at the Embassy event on the 27th of June at Nasrick, Johannesburg. This epic event will raise the flag for extraordinary experiences with Boys and Bucks, Casper Noves, and many more. With only 4,000 tickets on offer, get yours now for only 200 rand at CompuTicket or visit castlelight.co.za for more information on the coolest event this winter. Unlock Extra Cold Refreshment. Enjoy responsibly. Not for sale to persons under the age of 18. Wow, that is just so amazing by Mango Groove. Give me the title, please. Special Star. Special Star. Oh, those lyrics. There's a star shining in your eyes. Oh, you see, that's why I'm in love. (laughs) That's why I'm so passionate. At the age of 61, my dream. Is to ignite your mindsets. My dream is to encourage everyone hearing my voice to look up. Duncan, you know, today, of course, many of us carry uh, little devices called uh, memory sticks around. You asked me a little question about that. You know, Professor, if it took only 64 megabytes. Yes, kilobytes. Kilobytes, sorry, just to get to the moon. And uh, we've got USBs that are capable of holding like even... 20 gigs on just a USB. Absolutely, absolutely. So I, I just wonder, with the kind of power we have today, yep. what more can we do or what can yeah, we do? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's very, very interesting. There's a certain law called Moore's Law, Gordon. And uh, Gordon Moore wrote in his vision that uh, computer so- hardware, the capability of it, would double 
every 15 to 18 months at the same price. So in other words, in 15 to 18 months' time, we'll have a doubling of the processing speeds and so on uh, with regard to computer technology and computer hardware, with regard to computer performance. And you can see that is true. Um, if you go from, as Duncan has said, 64 kilobytes, and you go on to my processors uh, operating at 2.2 gigahertz at 16 gigs of RAM, uh, you know, it's just unbelievable. The important thing here is that, as Duncan has correctly said, at 64Ks, I mean, if you gave somebody a memory stick with 64 kilobytes, hmm, what would you do with it? Well, you know, I couldn't even give it to my dog to bury because, you know, I mean, <laughs> with that, we landed man on the moon. And that just shows you the power of teamwork. Because I remember that there were around three and a half thousand different people. I've shown Duncan a picture of this, but there were around three and a half thousand different people operating these ancient computers, uh, really designed by um, IBM. And uh, there was the so-called Apollo guidance computer, uh, the AGC. And uh, it's incredible that they actually typed in the astronauts did pairs of nouns and verbs to control the spacecraft. I mean, I mean, just think of this, folk. Imagine typing in a word like up, just a verb or a noun, and up it goes. I mean, that's how primitive it is. Is that by you know not by <laughs> you know sophisticated assembly language, but just by nouns and verbs. You know, do this. You know, move, roll, and the spacecraft would actually roll. I mean, it is unbelievable. It's beyond the human capacity to imagine that we put Neil Armstrong on the moon with operating speeds of 0.043 megahertz and 64 kilobytes of capacity and storage. I mean, it is just... But remember that Bill Gates himself said that 256K should be enough for everybody. That's a famous statement. of his, a famous quote. Duncan can call it up maybe, but it's a famous quote by Bill Gates is that 256K should be enough from it for, for everybody. Now, coming back to Darren from PE... Uh, a hearty welcome to you, Darren. I always love your questions. Prof. Block, are there any other planets in our solar system that mankind could visit? The, uh, that's, again, a very brilliant question. And the answer really is yes. But how comfortable are you sitting alongside your wife or whomsoever you sit alongside for a period of a few years cooped up in a spacecraft to get there? That is the challenge. You see, when we look at the planets, when we look at Mars or Jupiter or Saturn, you know, missions to Mars realistically could take, you know, from many, many months to many, many years, depending on where you're going and how long you're staying and so forth. So let's imagine that you've got this little space module, okay? And it's got two very comfy chairs and you're tied up in those chairs, okay? And you take out a bowl, well, a bottle of Coke, say, and it just hangs there because, you know what I mean, apparent zero gravity. So it's just hanging there. Now, I don't know how comfortable you are uh, being with any individual for uh, seven days uh, locked up together. Duncan, is this sounding familiar? Is that we need to breathe a little bit? Um, 
Imagine being in a spacecraft, even if it did have a lounge and, you know, a super sort of, you know, luxury surroundings. I wonder how comfortable I would be locked up with any team where I can't get out for, say, two or three years. I think that's extreme. I mean, you know, please remember that when you and I land at Cape Town, we can go and chill, as we say. Why can we go and chill? Because there's an atmosphere. So we can go to Table Mountain. We can chill at the sea. There are hotels to visit. We can have fun. Remember, if you land on the planet Mars, for example, there's no... there's. <laughs> it's just a world in which you cannot even draw one breath. You've got to take your oxygen with you. You've got to take your whole spacesuit with you. You cannot just go and walk on Mars. You need, you know, your special space suit. Uh, there's no hotels to visit on the planet Mars. There's no Sun City to just go and have a chill for us. Do you see the problem here, Duncan, is that it's not a technological one, but a psychological one. Professor, what would solve that is if we just send robots. Well, we've done that, and I think that is really the way forward in a very real sense, is we've done that. Uh, if you remember on some of the earlier podcasts, we've spoken about spirit and opportunity, uh, the oh, yeah. robots uh, which have landed on Mars and which are doing what man would do is go and explore. And I think that's a very, that's a very simple way forward. But here comes the rub. Human beings, men and women, boys and girls, uh, love to explore. When Dr. Heidi phoned me yesterday and she said she's got this daughter, Aliki, who's passionate in love with astronomy, you know, maybe she will be a person who does want to go to Mars. I do not know, but this thing I do know is that people, when they see a mountain, Duncan, they want to scale it. <laughs> mm. It's just in our genes. Uh, you know, otherwise, you know, just send a little drone up there. Why climb Mount Everest if you can go there? You know what I mean? Send a drone or go Google Earth and, you know, there's something in us that wants to explore. Yes. There's something in us that wants to make us reach the unreachable. And so there are people out there. I'm not one of them who really want to go and experience what it is to land on other planets. Adventure seekers, Professor. That's Well, that's beautiful. That's right. They're seeking adventure. In other words, they're in their, you know, neurophysical, neurophysiological processes, pumping adrenaline, pumping, you know, those hormones, you know, active, you know, Pumping you with excitement, the, uh, you know, adventure seekers. And these people would be willing to give up a couple of years to do such an excursion. You will need people whose nerves are almost made of steel. What were those programs, Duncan, where you saw people locked in a house for a week and they couldn't get, oh, Big Brother. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was Big Brother, wasn't it? Yeah. And you saw people, I mean, really, I mean, they were just, I mean, certain people just couldn't take it after a couple of days. I mean, they were locked in a beautiful house. But when you saw what happened, I mean, apart from people lying on the couches and everywhere, they just, it was staggering just to watch the emotions and the fury and the rage. And that was in seven days. Imagine that happening over a period of a couple of years. And so, you know, the question is today, we've got the computer technology and so forth. Of course, we can send people to the planet's. Not to the stars. 
Why? Because the closest star to us, excluding the sun, of course, Proxima Centauri, would take you a round trip of eight years traveling at the speed of light. So if you traveled at the speed of light, mm. it's a round trip of eight years. And we can't even get to a fraction, not even a fraction of the speed of light. The speed of light in vacuum is 300,000 kilometers per second. Mm. 300 thousand kilometers per second. So if you wanted to undertake a journey to the nearest stars, you'd have to live for a few million years, if not longer. In some cases, in many cases, billions of years. So imagine this. You're a mother, you're a father, you die on board, you get chucked out, you know, whatever they do with you, then your children take over, then your grandchildren take over, and in a couple of billion years you get then there's no there's no hotel. I mean <laughs> it it's it's staggering. It 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 you know the whole question of space travel does need men and women of steel. Du- Duncan, now, now you have you a question. That, now that you say that, Professor, mm. I think for anyone to be able to go to Mars, you'd have to be half man, half machine. <laughs> I, th- I like that. I really like that. I love that. And I'll tell you why I love that is I have uh, had a meal with one of the astronauts. And uh, I'll never forget him eating steak. His mouth open and closed with such precision it looked like I was with a robot. <laughs> He's Duncan's just watching my mouth doing this, but it was just there was no emotion. It was, a, it was just like it was locked into this machine. And while he was an extremely warm person, he was just so in a sense red in a sense of emotion. He he was like a robot. You know, I remember uh, there was an experiment where they actually put some monitors on one of the astronauts' hearts at the time of liftoff. And you can imagine, this is the time of liftoff, you know, 10, 9, 8, you know, and eventually we have a liftoff, you know. Imagine that. I mean, you know, your heart would be pounding, right, Duncan? Yeah, definitely. Yes, and they say that his heartbeat was the same rate as his heartbeat when he's watching television in the lounge. Hmm. So in other words, what Duncan says is perfectly true. It's almost like half man, half robot. Uh, you will get people like this, and you do, I am sure, who are willing to invest a couple of years in such a ride. As I say, apart from the psychological problems of simply being together, you really are locked up. I mean, it's not like Big Brother where if you, you can't take it anymore, you ask to get out. Here you're in the middle of space, so there's no getting out. It's a total commitment. And as I have stressed already, once you arrive on a planet like, such as Mars, there's no facilities to enjoy. You've got, once again, can only stay in your spacecraft, or if you go walking, You've got to use your space suit. So... Second stage tanks now pressurized. 35 seconds and counting. We are still going 30 seconds and counting. Astronauts report it feels good. T-minus 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9, ignition sequence start, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1.
you'll hear that I was totally speechless because it's just such an awesome moment that I just can't describe the awesomeness of hearing that again. I mean, that's just such a brilliant piece that Duncan brought up. It's just so awesome. You know, that ignition and that countdown and to think that a person's heart rate in that machine is the same as if he's watching television in his lounge. You know, of course, the astronauts are very, very carefully selected. Of course. so. But uh, that's, you know, a journey of, you know, some days. But to get to journeys of months and then years and then multitudes of years, I certainly am not one who's willing to invest, say, you know, say three or four years of my time being in a, in a, um, in a spacecraft. And, uh, but that, that, that soundtrack just does it all for me. I mean, to think that controlling that, you know, I mean, electronic toasters today, digitally controlled, are more complex than the computers which controlled that incredible liftoff in 1969, which again brings me back to this point is that so many students want the best of everything. I have the privilege of lecturing to 300 students in first year, and Duncan, it's so common amongst the 300 uh, children to say, I want the best prof, I need the fastest computer, I need the fastest this, and so forth. And I think the message of toasters and the first landing on the moon is that with something as primitive as a toaster, you can get to the moon. In fact, with something less primitive than the toaster, you can get to the moon. And so, you know, Duncan has brought back again a picture of Nelson Mandela holding this moon rock on www.davidblockoneword.co.za, hitting the button with the stars. And yes, I mean, Mr. Mandela said that this is one of the highlights of his life, was to hold this moon rock in his hands, and what we are actually saying is, you know, yes, with such primitive technology that, you know, a USB stick today puts it in total embarrassment, the computers of this age, puts it in total embarrassment. I mean, again, when I was a student, these computers occupied an entire floor. Now we carry them, you know, smaller than little USB sticks. I mean, I can carry from my home to my work, Duncan, two or three terabytes of information on little sticks. I mean, it is, you know, it's just billions of times more than that tiny little, uh, those ancient little computers of 0.043 megahertz and uh, <laughs> the processing powers of today. And so Mr. Mandela does look so relaxed, so fulfilled, Duncan said, so happy. And the reason Mandela feels so happy is because he's holding something from another world. He's holding a rock which has never experienced wind. It's never experienced the awesomeness of wind blowing. It's never experienced anything, but it's pristine. It is awesome. And I want Duncan again to replay the blast off because the lift off. That to me, to think that, just please, when you listen to this again, please just realize that the technology on the ground is 64 kilobytes worth of storage at an operating speed of 0.043 megahertz. Uh, let, you know, your toaster is more advanced than this. Just listen to what we've achieved. All the second stage tanks now pressurized. 35 seconds and counting. We are still go 30 seconds and counting. 
astronauts report it feels good. T-minus 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And there you hear the engines of the Saturn V rocket in all its glory and splendor racing towards the moon. But I want to stress yet another very incredible point with regard to computers in the moon landing and toasters in the moon, and that's this. What about coming home? Well, you can't just enter the atmosphere at any angle. Why not? Because if you hit the, uh, the atmosphere obliquely, or too, too much to the vertical, it'll just fire up and you'll burn up. You have to enter at a very gentle angle. If you're coming too steeply or too shallow, if you're coming too shallow, you just skim the Earth's atmosphere and you carry on to the sun. If you're coming too steeply, the frictional energy is so high that you heat up and you'll be frazzled. So you should uh, try get it as a glide, like you're gliding yes, on top. That's right. That's exactly right. You have to come in like a glide. Now, that's fine to say that, but let me give you some analogy. Imagine the moon and the earth being the size of a soccer ball, say, and a tennis ball. Okay, so the earth is the size of a soccer ball, and the moon is the size of a tennis ball. And you separate the tennis ball and the soccer ball by about three meters. Now, put a piece of paper just a piece of paper between the tennis ball and the soccer ball. That is the thickness, the width of the zone, the marginal zone you have to enter, re-enter on the glide. If you out by any amount other than the width of that paper, you fried. Mm. You either fried or you go to the sun. Calculations. Well, extreme calculations, Duncan. I mean, a piece of paper, this is a lovely analogy, and then you've got the earth the size of a soccer ball, the moon the size of a tennis ball, say, got a little piece of paper, and that width of that paper represents on that scale the margin of error you've got. If you come in too steeply, you just fry up, fizzle up. If you come in too uh, obliquely, you just bounce off the earth's atmosphere and head out for the sun. And to think that the re-entry phase, which is always the most dangerous phase of the space mission, really, it's not so much the take-off, the lift-off. But here we are, you know, discussing toasters and the moon landing. And just before we play out with Mango Groove and, you know, those wonderful words again, I just want that repeated, please, Duncan, you know, with stars in the eyes, those special stars. You know, to think that the re-entry again was, you know, controlled by computers who were less complex, both in storage and in processing power, than that of a toaster today. I think that this is a tribute to the human psyche. It is a tribute to the human frame. It is a tribute of those who, given extreme limitations, reach for the stars. We've had this in South Africa in the form of Ahmed Kathrada, whom I met recently. 
of Nelson Mandela and many others. We've had these people who have reached for their stars, their dreams. In space, the re-entry of Apollo 11 was extraordinary, finely tuned. Again, with process, computers processing storage capacity 64 kilobytes. Bill Gates himself said that 256Ks should be enough for everybody. And so my closing thought in the last two minutes is this. Don't let technology take your life over. Because the lesson of the moon landing is that it's not the technology which drives the dream, but it's the dream uh, which drives the vision. It's the dream which enables you to relive that magic moment. Uh, let's just think of what Neil Armstrong said. He said, that is one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And maybe as uh, Krista McLaughlin says, space is going to be commonplace one day. I do not know. Maybe there are these adventurers out there who wish to reach for the stars. But as for me... I stay on terra firma and I relive my dream. That's one small step for me, but one giant leap for mankind. You've been listening to Professor David Block and Duncan and Toasters and the first moon landing. Thank you for your attention. Cliffcentral.com.